1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm Jason
2: Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: Eric Zemmour, a far-right presidential candidate, has relentlessly stoked anti-Muslim sentiment in France. We pay a visit, finding a constituency afraid the society is changing too much and a Muslim community afraid that nothing is changing at all.
2: And making good money in Lebanon is just about impossible these days after a series of economic crises. But one profession is bringing in plenty of customers, from within the country and abroad. But first... The West has launched a full-scale economic assault on Russia following the invasion of Ukraine. America banned the sale of a wide range of goods, big companies pulled out by the dozen, and a number of countries together froze 60% of the central bank's international reserves. This week, Wale Adeyemo, America's deputy treasury secretary, said Russian supply chains are next. The Russian economy is contracting at a faster pace than it has since 1998 when it defaulted on its debt. Anyone who has money in Russia today is trying to get that money out as quickly as possible because of our actions. And that's why the idea was to send Russia's economy into freefall, punishing President Vladimir Putin for his aggression. But in fact, Russia's economy is proving more resilient than many expected.
3: In the days after the invasion took place, there was real chaos in Russian markets. The ruble was collapsing, the stock market, suspended trading. The share prices of Russian companies listed abroad were falling by catastrophic amounts.
2: Callum Williams is a senior economics writer for The Economist.
3: But what's happened in recent weeks is that things have subsided and actually, in some measures, improved pretty drastically.
2: So give us an overview. What state is the Russian economy in broadly?
3: First, you could talk about the financial markets. The chaos has definitely ended. The ruble is approaching its pre-war level now, which sounds pretty insane given uh, the scale of the sanctions that have been imposed on the country. There was a banking run in the early days of the war where people were going to banks and taking out their savings because they feared the banking system was going to collapse. That has now stopped. So in other words, normality in markets is creeping back.
2: That seems surprising given how much... The West has talked up the intensity of their sanctions. How has Russia short its economy up? How has normality crept back in?
3: So it's a combination, really, of orthodox and unorthodox policies. The orthodox one is that the central bank has raised interest rates very drastically. It's basically doubled them. And this gives people a pretty strong incentive to put their money back in banks, because then you can earn interest on it. They've also provided a lot of support to the banking system. So the fear that the banking system was going to collapse has gone. That's the orthodox stuff. Then there's less orthodox stuff. So, for instance, they've basically banned short selling on the Moscow Stock Exchange. And particularly for foreign investors, it's become more difficult to sell shares. So obviously, if you can't sell shares anymore, it's more difficult for the price of shares to keep falling.
2: And so that's the sort of financial economy. What about the real economy? Russians in their ordinary lives, are they feeling the impact of sanctions?
3: Yes, they are. But I think that there is evidence that the real economy is holding up even more surprisingly well than the financial one. The one that everyone's talking about, obviously, is inflation. Prices are definitely going up. They've gone up by 5% since the beginning of March. So that's very rapid inflation. Not everything is surging in price, but clearly inflation is going up. On the other hand, if you look at how people are actually behaving things look a lot better. There are various high-frequency measures of economic activity in Russia. For instance, how much electricity the country is using. That has gone down a bit, but not very much. And then there's various measures of kind of weekly GDP that people have turned to during the pandemic to see how things are going. And and actually, basically, GDP growth in Russia appears not really changed at all since the invasion took place. It's surprising, I think, because I think a lot of people expected the impact to be short and swift a bit like the lockdowns when economic activity collapsed overnight but that simply has not happened yet
2: and so if the financial economy is recovering and ordinary russians are weathering the storm what impact are the sanctions actually
3: having so sanctions are definitely having an impact it is still true that the ruble is a lot weaker than it would have been absent the sanctions so that's clearly an important thing to bear in mind it's also clearly the case that a lot of companies in russia are struggling to get the inputs they need to produce goods and services. So, for instance, the airline sector, aviation more broadly, looks in real trouble. And you're going to get to a situation before long when planes are basically leaving Moscow airport, missing quite key components. So, like, there are definitely problems here. But it appears to be the case that Russia is able, in many cases, to get around the sanctions. And I think also in the West, we maybe underestimate the kind of resilience, I suppose, of the Russian people who have been exposed to a lot of privation over the decades. And there's a kind of resilience there that I think was hard to predict ex ante.
2: And there's a resilience in the people, there's a resilience in the economy itself. I wonder, to the extent that Russia's financial and real economies are fairly resilient, is that a structural hangover from the Soviet era? Is that down to steps that Putin's government has taken? Is it a bit of both?
3: I think it's a bit of both. It's definitely the case that the Soviet Union was very isolated from globalization, really from the 50s to it collapsed. And so you did get the development of big, important Russian sectors that really had nothing to do with the rest of the world. So mining is one, oil and gas is another. But I think, as various academics have argued there is this kind of core aspect of kind of Putinism, which emphasizes self-reliance and and, and what some people call survivalism. So this idea that that you should be able to survive without having to rely on foreigners. And certainly after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, there was a very concerted effort to try and uh, cut reliance on imports. And if you look now at the Russian economy, one good way of measuring this is the share of Imports in Russian exports. For countries like the UK and France and America, that's pretty high. Those economies need a lot of imports in order to export stuff. But for Russia, that's much less true. And so, yes, there has been this kind of very concerted effort to get to that stage. So, Russia is unusually isolated from the global economy, even in normal times. The one big exception to that, of course, is uh, oil and gas.
2: How dependent is the Russian economy on fossil fuel exports? And what happens if the West decides to stop buying them or to look elsewhere?
3: Oil is about twenty five percent of Russian exports in normal times. It's a big source of foreign currency and therefore of wealth and the way in which it buys imports and all that kind of stuff. That is still happening at a very large scale. Volumes are down a bit, but prices are up a lot. And so the amount of money coming in via fossil fuels to Russia is still very high. If miraculously, the world decided to stop uh, buying all of these oil and gas products, then Russia would be in very serious trouble. That's the greatest leverage that the West has over Russia. But for various political reasons, it's currently deemed too difficult to do that. And so as a result, I think it seems quite likely that for quite some time, Russia will be able to stumble on doing fairly well economically, even as there are many sanctions imposed upon it.
2: All right. Callum, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks,
0: John. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace. It's kind of a boys club the new season of things that go boom from inkstick media and prx is coming march 18th find it wherever you get your podcasts
1: in paris on sunday tens of thousands of people descended on the trocadero just across the senna river from the eiffel tower They'd come for the biggest campaign rally yet of Eric Zemmour, a candidate of the extreme right. He'd been a TV pundit, polemicist, who entered the presidential race in late November, and swiftly looked like he posed a serious challenge to Marine Le Pen, a stalwart of the country's far right. We'd come to see how Mr. Zemmour would whip up supporters with his platform, Anti feminist, anti woke, anti foreigner, and perhaps most of all, anti Muslim. (laughs) By the time Mr. Zemmour took the stage, we'd been there for more than two hours, as one party functionary after another gave speeches, interspersed with slick campaign videos featuring the parents of children killed by North African migrants or by Islamist terrorism. For some, it's a resonant message. France has been the site of horrific attacks. It's easy for the likes of Mr. Zemmour to play to public fears, to elide Islam and Islamic terror. But his speech was, well, pretty flat, academic. He is no firebrand, but the crowd got whipped up all the same. chant of, this is our home, starts elsewhere in the crowd and picks up in volume. Then it's, get on the plane. Early in the campaign, this kind of stuff got Mr. Zemmour lots of attention and support in the polls. But the truth is that, apart from this rally, people seem to have cooled on him as the vote on April 10th nears. In this fifth installment of our French election series we're going to look at why the feelings he's tapped into, renormalized in French society, why those will outlast his presidential run. One part of France where you'll find the kinds of tensions that Mr. Zemmour is stoking most in evidence is in the region of Provence in the southeast. The cultural mix includes lots of immigrants from North Africa and their descendants, and it's a place that reliably leans to the right in elections like the current one. (laughs) Our first stop was Marseille, France's second city of 1.6 million people, which is the exception. It's more cosmopolitan, and not so long ago was a socialist and communist stronghold. Our cab driver Laurent said he wasn't interested in voting, but he seemed very up on politics. He used one phrase that stuck out. The Great Replacement. It's from a book by a far-right writer named Renaud Camus. It's become a white supremacist talking point around the world. In France, the idea is of a relentless replacement of so-called French people with those from France's former colonies, like Algeria, just across the Mediterranean. Mr. Zemmour leans hard on this idea. The French constitution explicitly states that the republic will be laïque, a strict form of secularism that's central to France's identity. For Mr. Zemmour and Marine Le Pen of the national rally, the wearing of the hijab and the Muslim prayer times they can spill out onto French streets are an affront to that idea. We had come to Marseille to visit the Mosque El Isla, the biggest mosque in southern France, in one of the city's northern districts that are known for poverty and crime. We arrived when a class full of children were getting their two hours of Saturday lessons, and met Murad Hamza, an imam who preaches at the mosque and elsewhere in the region. I asked him about his faith being dragged into the presidential campaign rhetoric. How, how, does, it feel to, how does it feel to the community that Islam... Islamism is so prevalent, so uh, so so talked about in politics. Moi je parle en français.
2: Or l'islam fait partie de la société française depuis maintenant plus de deux siècles même plus.
1: He told us these days Muslims in France are treated like second class citizens.
2: Et considère les musulmans comme des citoyens de seconde zone.
1: He said every aspect of Muslim life is often seen as a sign of extremism. Even wanting to learn Arabic can earn you the label of Islamist. As the call to prayer began, Mr. Hamza began to roll up his sleeves in preparation for his ablutions, and we bid him goodbye. Good to go? If you are Nearer the center of the city is the en Mosque, where we again arrived just in time for prayers. People ran past us, prayer mats tucked under arms and slung over shoulders. No one wanted to be late. The mosque was full, more than full. As we walked around its perimeter, men knelt on mats laid out on the pavement outside. A few minutes later, they all dispersed, hundreds and hundreds of people firing up scooters or cars or walking away. When we approached a few of the young men who lingered behind, they spoke first about the sitting president. They weren't big fans. A crook, a liar, an actor, it went on. Wow. When asked about other presidential contenders, there was no consensus. One said his life would probably remain just as difficult no matter who wins the race. Another expressed his disappointment in the French electorate, saying he didn't understand how so many people would want to vote for Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour.
4: It's a fair autant
1: point. On the full political spectrum, Mr. Zemmour and Ms. Le Pen aren't so far apart. We set off for Fréjus, a pretty little town to the east, not far from the beach, that consistently votes for Ms. Le Pen's national rally. There, we met with Frank Giletti, who's the regional head of the party.
4: Bonjour. Bonjour. Bonjour.
1: Ms. Le Pen, like Mr. Zemmour, makes frequent reference to French traditions, to customs and mores, by which it seems they frequently mean past ones or Christian ones. So I wanted to ask Frank about the party's kind of identity platform. So in plain terms, what are the issues about identity that the party cares about?
4: Oh, um... We can see that... Uh, we can see that some... some our tradition are not respected. Our way of life sometimes are not respected. Like uh, uh, you know, there is some swimming pool. There is a, a planning for women, planning for men. So it doesn't the identity of France. That's why we said this. This is not our identity. Islamists uh, want some people. The only Islamist people want to change change this. Um, uh, this uh, way of life.
1: When I press him about women wearing the hijab, a question that has long divided France versus other religious symbols, he gets frustrated and lapses into French.
4: It's not the same idea, idea you know, it's... Uh, um, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand why.
1: The connotation is la not the same, he says, to where the veil is linked to a political agenda. This is key for those on the hard right, the only kind of Islam is the political kind. Frank wanted to take us on a little tour of Fréjus to get a look at the heart of a Le Pen stronghold. He gestured around a pretty square lined with little cafes, the requisite pastry shop, and he pointed out the town hall, the church.
4: The people who live here want to to keep their way of life, uh, their tradition, their way of life, more, maybe more than in the... Uh, the other place of France, and speci- specifically to this um, uh, town.
1: For Frank, Ms. Le Pen, and the rest of the country's hard right, it's this postcard vision of France that's being threatened. Reconciling these two parts of French society, on one side, people who are afraid that too much will change, on another, people who are afraid that nothing will, that is going to be a long road. And one of the only things that's clear is that this election has made that road longer. Next Thursday, our series continues. We'll be taking a look at Marine Le Pen, the most likely candidate to face President Emmanuel Macron in the runoff on April 24th, how she's courted the youth vote, burnished her image, and ended up not being the most far-right contender on the ticket this time. You can find all of our French election coverage online at economist.com france2022. For years now, Lebanon's economy has been lurching from crisis to crisis. The World Bank puts its slow-ruling economic meltdown as among the worst since the mid-1800s. But while most people are struggling to get by to keep the lights on, one profession seems to be doing just fine.
5: Plastic surgery has been popular in Lebanon for a really long time. People love their Botox, a lot of people like nose jobs. Some people consider it sort of a rite of passage.
1: Elise Burr is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist.
5: Teenagers tend to want a nose job in time for their graduation parties and pictures. And despite everything that Lebanon is going through with its economic crisis, its plastic surgeons report making the same amount of money or even more than they did before the financial crisis.
1: So we've talked endlessly on the show about the, the problems that have befallen Lebanon. How How is it that the plastic surgeons could be doing just fine amid all of that?
5: Well, it's a really good question because Lebanon is hurting. There have been times where the Lebanese pound has lost more than 90% of its value on the black market. A lot of Lebanese have been plunged into poverty Hospitals are facing shortages of medicine. And because of all these problems, the WHO reckons that about 40 percent of Lebanon's doctors have left the country. But what that means for the doctors who have stayed is that the pool of patients per doctor has increased. And that's one of the reasons why the doctors who are there have been doing fine.
1: But this doesn't sound like an economic situation in which people would be happy to pay for things like nose jobs.
5: Right. It's certainly impacted the ability of some people to pay for cosmetic procedures. But even if fewer Lebanese in the country can afford the surgery, the gap is being filled by people coming from abroad. One doctor I spoke to reckoned that 70 percent of the country's cosmetic surgery patients come from abroad. And he mentioned that this is a notably higher share than before the financial crisis.
1: Why why is that? Why why are people coming in from abroad to to get these procedures?
5: Well, it's partly thanks to Lebanon's horrible economic situation. The currency crash means that plastic surgery in Lebanon is a steal. The average Lebanese nose job is about 2500 US dollars, which is less than half of the going rate in America. And most of the patients coming to Lebanon for surgery are actually of Lebanese descent themselves. Lebanon itself has got about 7 million people, but because of all of its crises over the years, it has a really large diaspora population. Some people put the figure at around 15 million, which is about twice as big as the country's resident population. That's in part because of all of Lebanon's crises over the years. So there's a really large diaspora pool to draw on. And besides price, there are other benefits to coming back home for a nose job. A couple of the doctors I spoke to said people come, they get their nose job while they're recovering, they're hanging out with grandma and their cousins, and that's an added bonus. So things have been going pretty well for cosmetic surgeons in Lebanon at the moment, but... Most of them don't believe that this will last forever. I spoke with one doctor who, despite doing really well during the economic crisis, has decided to open a branch of his business in Cyprus. He only spends one week out of every two months there, but he decided to open it up as a backup plan. He says that when you live in Lebanon, you can never be too sure of what's coming next.
1: Elise, thanks very much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me, Jason.